Welcome to the weekly Mission Red Bank podcast, helping the body of Christ build itself up together in love. Well, good morning again. You know, some weeks back, those of you who haven't been here, just to give you a little context of where we've been, some weeks back we interrupted a study of the Gospel of Matthew to spend some time focusing on worship uh, and vision and what does that mean and how do we steward it well here. And we did this just after we had gotten a little bit beyond the Sermon on the Mount Um, right at a time when Jesus' ministry was kind of beginning to amp up. In chapters 5 through 7, Matthew shows us in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus announcing the kingdom of God evidenced chiefly through his teaching. You have heard it said, but I tell you. In the beginning in chapter 8, we see a shift Matthew begins to describe the authoritative kingdom power of Jesus demonstrated more through ministry to the marginalized and the performance of a lot of miracles, some astonishing people beyond anything they've ever witnessed, overpowering evil spirits, even raising the dead. And the general population is amazed. They begin to marvel saying things like, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the religious leaders are different. They begin to say that this power Jesus has over demons comes from the prince of demons, Beelzebul. See the difference? I would say one group maybe in what you might call their ignorance, was better prepared to receive what God was bringing. And another group with a lot of horsepower under their hood and a lot of history and a lot of study were so rigidly locked into what they knew, they couldn't hear. During all of this time, Jesus calls 12 men to walk closely with him, sending them out to further the work he's doing. He tells them that the same kinds of rumors and persecution that he's enduring are going to fall to them as well. Warning them while telling them to hold the line. Stand fast. Reminding them that this division and persecution and slander and worse that they will endure is part of the plan. And this turns out to be a really important warning. You know, John the Baptist, who came announcing Jesus in the beginning, he hadn't received this warning. And the persecution that he's enduring, it's having a real impact on him. He's been arrested, and he's beginning to weaken a bit while he's suffering in Herod's prison. So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to, honestly, to make sure he's not made a mistake. I think John thought that the coming of God's Messiah and the inauguration of his kingdom would look differently than what he was experiencing 
being unjustly prisoned, persecuted by an evil king. So Jesus sends encouraging words back to John, ensuring him that he is the Messiah and that the kingdom is coming, even though things look a lot different than John expected. In this intimate exchange between Jesus and his cousin, I think we observe something critically important. And it's this, the loving compassion and world-altering goodness of God that comes as his kingdom advances is chiefly evidenced, chiefly evidenced by God being with us rather than our circumstances changing. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive. Transform us, we pray through Christ. Amen. So going back to what Diane read in the gospel reading, I mean, it's just a few verses. Let me go through it again. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And then he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill, Matthew says, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So to walk through this passage real quickly, the this of which Jesus is aware is the fact that the religious leaders of God's people are conspiring together. They're trying to figure out a way, literally, trying to figure out a way to destroy him. He's a huge threat to them for a lot of reasons. Some very unjust, others very understandable, but still wrong. So, Jesus withdraws. Nevertheless, the wounded, the demonized, the sick, the needy, they seek him out. They keep following him, looking for him. Imagine this, if you will. Imagine a deadly plague breaking out, something from which there is no cure. You've seen movies like this, you know, the bad B.C. movies. Yes, you've seen them. Imagine that, something that leads to certain death. If we were to find ourselves in such an infected reality and learn that there was someone who could actually do something about it, we'd pursue him or her till we got what we so desperately needed, wouldn't we? 
Wouldn't you? For you, for your kids. That's what's up here. Folks have problems they cannot fix. Jesus has a reputation of caring and fixing such problems. So they're coming. And isn't it beautiful just to note how Matthew tells us that he healed them all? It's an explicit comment. He didn't just heal some. He healed all of them. But then he tells them to keep quiet about it, which they never do. But it begs the question, why? Why is Jesus trying to keep these incredible moments of amazing compassion a secret? What's he doing? And I think it's because of some of the response he's getting, especially from the religious leaders. I'll get into this more next week as we move forward. But for now, I want to note how Matthew uses a prophecy from Isaiah reminding us that God's chosen one, the one in whom God's spirit has been placed, the one who's come to proclaim justice not only to the Jews but to the rest of the world as well, he's not come, hear this clearly, he's not come to quarrel or cry out inciting some careless collision with the religious leaders or the culture. He's not just an activist. That would be really dumbing Jesus down. And we need to be careful of that. Because I think activist Jesus appeals to a lot of us, especially if we have similar causes. But he didn't come for that. He's actually come to really bring hope, to bring justice to victory for all people. All people. Now this is going to escalate in time. It's going to escalate the conflict that's already brewing with the religious leaders. It is going to further provoke the devil. Darkness and evil are going to continue to rise up. And in time it is going to cost Jesus' life. But that's ordained to happen at a specific time in a specific way. So for now, even as he's moving forward in his mission, he's not just charging the hill. He's doing it thoughtfully, specifically, particularly, strategically. But then there's this section that looks incredibly compassionate, and I believe it is. Where it says, a bruised reed he will not break while he's doing this. While he's strategically moving forward, part of that that matters to him and his way and what he's doing is a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Well, what all is going on there? I've most often heard this preached or taught to refer to the compassion we've, we've seen with Jesus healing everyone just prior. I mean, it's contextually, it's right there in our face, right? And it's been happening on the march all the way. And I don't think that's altogether wrong. Please hear me clearly. I think that is 
part of it, I just think it's incomplete. I think there's something more specific and more intimate going on. Not that that's not, but there's more. The scripture and Jesus himself have used this kind of language regarding a reed and fire. They've used that language about John the Baptist before. He's a fiery preacher who's come in the spirit of Elijah, not some reed being blown about in the wind of culture. That said, Jesus has just encountered John sending those disciples to come to him and ask if he really is Messiah. What's going on there? John's hurting, John's scared. His circumstances are so bad that the strength of his resolve, the fire of his confidence, is being challenged. It's weakening. It's beginning to lose. It's steady. Wouldn't yours? I mean, John's situation is awful. Being held in that prison by a king who is a joke with power. And it's terrible. So it's challenging his belief. I could imagine John thinking, this is not in the Bible explicitly, but inferring from the context, I could imagine John thinking, can this kind of injustice and suffering really be a part of what the Messiah and his kingdom coming looks like? Can this kind of intolerable stuff really be a part of following Jesus? Well, yeah, it really can. That's why Jesus gave his disciples a heads up before sending them out. You see, deliverance from Herod's prison isn't how God's loving compassion is going to come for John. That ain't going to happen. John's miracle is actually something more miraculous than if God were to bust him out. And something more important for the church to understand in that day, Matthew writing about it, And today, God preserving it for us to hear and see it. And it's this. The loving compassion and world-altering goodness of God chiefly manifests by God coming in the person of Jesus. Not necessarily ours or John's circumstances changing. Rather than delivering him from Herod's evil grip, Jesus gives John a different grace. As he's weakening, as his light's beginning to flicker, Jesus helps him steady. He cups his loving hands around John's flickering flame, shielding him from the despair that's trying to blow him out. And he points to the evidence that says, the kingdom's coming, John. It's coming, it's coming. 
The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor are having good news preached to them. And that grace is enough for John. Not because John's a superhero. But because when he announced that, that pronouncement, that word sent back was Jesus in the cell whispering in his ear. You got it right, John. You're not in here for nothing. I am the one who is to come. No need to look further. I know it's different than you expected, but it's the real thing nonetheless, and you're blessed for announcing and welcoming me. Stay the course. The kingdom is coming. And that's a really big deal. It was a really big deal then. It's a really, really, really big deal for us. Let me explain. Maybe you've observed, I have observed, that there is a kind of following Jesus today that, as late 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle would say, is not a full 16 ounces to the pound. He actually called it a kind of mingle-mangle. There's something that seems to line up with what Jesus teaches in it, but there's a lot missing. It's kind of like the church has learned to treat the Bible like it's a buffet. We get what we want. That's offensive. That's not how this works. There's a lot missing, especially in the understanding of suffering and struggle being not only appropriate, but expected. Let me say what I mean. Our aversion to suffering and struggle would seem strange to an early believer who embraced the banner cry from the king himself. This is your invitation. You grow up in the southern church, you hear invitations played at the end of service. Just as I am with 98 verses or whatever it is. I mean, people are dying of starvation. And just as I am just keeps going. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But you know what Jesus' invitation was? Come and die. That's what he said. Come and die. And the truth is, even though that's what they knew he had said, and many of them rejoiced, because there's a difference, and Diane and I were talking about this earlier, in the way the West and the East think about suffering. In the, in the West, we think a lot about suffering as this horrible thing and wonder why God's punishing it, versus often in the East, they think about it like, well, no, this is process for me to grow forward and to mature. They're right. 
And we confuse ourselves when we don't get that. So I think God gives us this to help. But that said, in truth, just like we see in John the Baptist, they struggled with it too. We're teaching Hebrews upstairs. This is my easiest outline of the book of Hebrews. The cost of Jesus is going up. The desire for Jesus is going down. They're being persecuted, so they're wanting back, out, something else. Please make Nero leave me alone. I get it. They struggled too. Now, I want to be clear when I speak about this. Suffering's certainly nothing to try and manufacture. I don't think I need to say that to you. But I want to be clear because some people get really zealous about this. Suffering is nothing to try and manufacture, but it really has been a reality for followers of Jesus from the very beginning. And he told his disciples it would be that way. And he goes back and gives a message to John that doesn't alleviate it, but leaves him in there where eventually he's going to get beheaded because of a lustful wager. Not that he made, but a promise that a king made. What about us? If suffering is expected and common in the lives of disciples of Jesus, and if being a Christian means to be a Talmud, a disciple of Jesus, how are we stewarding this? I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know whether you're feeling able and encouraged to steady and stay the course or weak like your flames flickering and about to go out. I don't know. But however things are, please know that it's totally appropriate for us to ask Jesus to rescue us from pain and scary circumstances. That's totally appropriate. But we must do so recognizing that we've already got a miracle whether he changes those circumstances or not. The fact that God doesn't stand far off from humanity and creation waiting on us to get things together and make it back to him, that's our miracle. It starts there. The loving compassion and world-altering goodness of God that comes as His kingdom advances is chiefly evidenced by Him being with us in our struggle. This is more often our grace than if our circumstances were to change. This is the miracle before anything else happens. It's a challenging word. I think it's exactly what the scripture teaches. So hear this, brothers and sisters, God is mindful of our weaknesses. He knows. And he remembers that he made us from the dust. So here's what he did. He became one of us. He entered into the dirt with us. He put on flesh. And he came to do something about our brokenness. 
find yourself feeling a little bit defensive or a little bit entitled or a little stubborn opposing this message, I want to invite you to humble yourself and pray. There's no shame. That's not needed. That won't work, will it? Shame comes from insecurity. I don't think God's insecure. But I want to invite you to humble yourself and pray and ask God to help you receive that the fact that he came is a miracle. It's yours. He gives it freely. He paid for it dearly, but he gives it freely. If you find yourself maybe not resisting, but weak or flickering, scared, I also want to encourage you to pray. Maybe go in the back where the candles are and light one and see that flame ignite, that small flame, and remind yourself that God doesn't break us bruised reeds. And he, and he doesn't extinguish or snuff out us smoldering wicks. He knows us. He knows us. And he's mindful of our struggle. And he's with us in it. Hallelujah. Just like he was with John, he's with us in it. Humble yourself, pray, and receive. Amen. You've been listening to the Mission Red Bank Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to know more about Mission Red Bank or have questions about what you've heard today, you'll find us on Facebook. Grace and peace to you, and may God's blessings surround you.